0: Great Adaptations is a podcast, a book and now thanks to our friends at the Wiper and True Brewery a beer. You can find out more information about this unique collaboration and how to order at theglaciertrust.org forward slash beer This is The Great Adaptations Podcast from The Glacier Trust. Hello, I'm Morgan Phillips, UK Co-Director of The Glacier Trust and your host for The Great Adaptations Podcast. Glacier Trust enables climate change adaptation in the remote mountain villages of Nepal. To do this, we work with fantastic NGO partners on projects that prevent landslides, secure water supplies, tackle insect pest infestations, and support farmers to transition to forms of agriculture that are not only more resilient to the growing impacts of climate change, but also part of a wider process of societal transformation that aims to strengthen democracy, improve health and education, and fight for racial, gender, and economic equality. Our project work follows strong ecological and social justice principles, and doesn't separate adaptation off from the pressing need to regenerate nature, mitigate climate change, and transition the world away from an economic system that is failing Nepal and failing the world. In 2020, lockdown and unable to visit Nepal, I wrote a short book called Great Adaptations in the Shadow of a Climate Crisis. It was published in September 2021 by ArcBound and is available to buy via the Glacier Trust website, but you can also find it on all the good book-selling websites. This podcast series accompanies the book and features interviews with scientists, politicians, academics, and campaigners. The aim of the book, the podcast, and the wider Great Adaptations project is simple. We want to get more people talking and thinking about adaptation. Adaptation is already happening and we can only expect to see more of it and more of its evil twin, maladaptation. We want to shine a light on the great and not so great adaptations so that when people start designing and implementing their adaptation strategies, they look to adapt in ways that are socially just, compatible with mitigation efforts and part of a wider transformative process. The adaptations to climate change that are already happening need to be scrutinised and celebrated in equal measure. Great Adaptations does that, but conversations about adaptation can't exist in a vacuum. Context is everything. Welcome to episode two of the Great Adaptations podcast. This is an interview with Leanne Wood, politician, podcaster and social justice champion. From 2012 to 2018, Leanne was leader of Plaid Cymru, the Party of Wales, and previous to that, she was Plaid Cymru's sustainability spokesperson. Leanne lost her seat in the Senedd, the Welsh Parliament, in May 2021, so isn't currently actively involved in politics. Her voice, however, is still a prominent and important one, and she continues to campaign on the issues that are close to her heart. I spoke to Leanne via Zoom in September 2021, and started off by asking her about her personal relationship to climate change, now she first started to engage with it. We covered the work she's doing now to call for a public inquiry into the response to the horrendous flash flood that hit the run of the Valley in early 2020. We also discussed the off-the-record conversations she has on climate justice issues with colleagues in the political world and how climate change shows up in the lives of her former constituents in the South Wales Valleys. I'll be back at the end to reflect a bit more on our conversation, but for now, here's Leanne Wood on the Great Adaptations podcast.
1: I think I first heard about um, the issues related to climate change, although it wasn't called climate change then, back in the 1980s when we were talking about the ozone layer and acid rain and those kinds of um, issues. And then the uh, Chernobyl disaster happened and there were all kinds of questions around um, the environmental impact on that on on sheep in Wales I remember that being a debate Um, and also you know the the land um, near to where the the disaster took place and how it was going to be out of use for such a long period of time and I remember um, being concerned about that in particular because I was I was beginning to become aware of um, the campaign for nuclear disarmament and the whole issues around um, uh, nuclear power and uh, nuclear weapons, and so I have a, a vague memory of linkages there, but of course I was, you know, a, a young teenager, so mm. your ability to make the big links in the bigger picture, um, I think that, well, for me anyway, were, we're limited at that point. Um, And it wasn't until much later on, probably in the mid 2000s, when I first started looking at um, climate and the environment really seriously. And that was after I'd been an assembly member for a term. I'd joined the assembly after being a, a probation officer. And um, I was very much driven by the issues that had come out of my role as a probation officer. So I was concerned about um, crime policy, equalities, poverty, um, addictions, mental health, child protection, all of those kinds of issues. And so my first role in the Senate, I was appointed as um, Plaid Cymru's social justice spokesperson, and I was very comfortable uh, in that role. And then in 2007, when Plaid Cymru went into government with uh, Labour, I was appointed um, the Shadow uh, Minister for um, the Environment, Sustainability and Climate Change. And it was a completely different um, uh, policy arena to what I was used to. It was completely outside my comfort zone. I had to read an awful lot. I didn't feel that I'd come from a science background. And so a lot of the information I was reading was science-based. And so I spent, I remember spending the summer of 2007 completely immersing myself in as much as I could read as possible. And it was then really that I realised how scary things were and what a really serious position we were in. Mm-hmm. It had, it had been like background noise up until that point, until I until I looked at it in depth, and then um, I remember being worried and concerned and um, quite anxious in some in some ways as well, because. Um, it, it, it wasn't so much, well, it was what was happening and what was being predicted, yeah. but it was also um the the political inability or lack of um desire to to take it seriously. And I was part of the problem up until that point, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I could recognize the the issue, and that scared me even more then at that point. So um so yeah, the journey's been quite an interesting one, really, over quite a long period of time. Um, and and in many ways, you know, the situation has improved greatly in the last sort of 10, 15 years. The climate crisis is much higher up our political agenda now. But I still have a sense of frustration that it's not high enough up mm-hmm. and it's not um it's not driving politics in the way that it should.
0: Yeah, I think that's seems to be um kind of yeah, the way that I understand it. It's it's kind of there and definitely more on the agenda it's very hard to know isn't it in the current kind of the way that we absorb media to know how much of it is just because of the bubble that you're in and the echo chambers that you're in and this is why i always kind of still sort of try to watch kind of bbc headline news and just to just to kind of get that perspective but do you feel like it is is a political battle battleground at the moment and that the the major parties are kind of you know have distinct positions on it or or do you feel that that's not the case and that there may be much of a muchness? I don't know. How do you feel about that?
1: Yeah. It seems sometimes that everyone is just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a problem. We're on the case, but then it's difficult to see the major changes that we need. I mean, I, I can't see how um, we can carry on just using the earth's resources in the way that we do in a way that outstrips um, massively um, what is, what is there. And, Mm. you know, there's a limit to that. And that is the discussion that we're not having because economics carries on as normal. We carry on talking about economic growth and it, it just seems sometimes that there's cognitive dissonance between mm. um what is being said in terms of yes yes we we're, we're doing what we can on the environment and then the actual policies that need to be put in place so for an example in you know the, the Welsh government has taken some good decisions the decision not to go ahead with the M4 relief fraud mm-hmm. was a as a really good and and brave decision i think because you know the lobby was was very strong and the conservative government was um, taking a, a position of wanting that road to building to go ahead. Part of the budget cuts that were were made um, after COVID involved the cut of the budget to support the creation of um, uh, renewable energy through hydropower. Mm-hmm. Very small grants were made for very small scale developments in communities that are two here in the Rhondda, which are you know fantastic because they're creating a resource for those local community projects and the funding for that um subsidy was was cut and now it doesn't exist and so mm-hmm. those those small scale projects if we could have thousands of those small scale renewable energy food production. Production um, projects, then we could make a huge, huge impact because we've got the natural resources to support that here in Wales. Yet the government, despite its commitment to um, tackling the climate emergency and describing it as a climate crisis and, and you know, those, those progressive things that we see them doing um, and having a, a, a Future Generations um, mm-hmm. Act and all of that stuff, um, is undermined by that very, very small budget um, disappearing. So I think that that's where my frustration comes in, really. You know, I see this need for big changes in the to, in the way that we run the economy and the way that we organise our communities. And then blockages and obstacles are put in the way of doing that all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do the, um, in conversations that you've had with your sort of, you know, when... When you're not in a in a kind of official environment and you're and you're kind of having the discussion with with politicians or either with whether it's sort of within Plaid or or more broadly in any sort of forums where you come together, um, I'm guessing that when something like COVID comes on, the agenda, especially right back sort of January February time 2020 when people were starting to become aware of what was happening i'm sure there were i mean the, in my world there was some voices who were like guys we really need to take this seriously i'm really worried this is going to kick off it's going to be awful and then you've got other people going oh i'm too busy with my daily work to sort of really concentrate on it um, and i was just wondering whether you've ever had any sort of conversations where people have gone where you can really see the emotion and, and the worry in people's mind about climate change and it has it have you had conversations where people have kind of you know you can sort of see their face going going pale when they start to think about the impact of it or maybe it's just dawned on i was just wondering if those conversations ever come up and is it does it become a kind of has it ever can you ever think of a time where there's been that sort of really visceral emotional response of you know we really need to do something
1: um m- mainly from young people mm. not um others in the political world really um okay i mean there are They tend to be people who are in the Green Party, mainly, I'd say the people who who really have 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 an emotional reaction to to what's going on. And, you know, and I I think of people like Greta Thunberg, you know, she she kind of epitomizes that fear really amongst our generation, I think. Um, And I've seen I've seen a number of I've had a number of conversations with younger people that have, you know, it gives you that same sort of feeling that. That she gives uh, gives mm. us, um, but no, I I always get the feeling that other things come in front of climate change. Um, the economic considerations are are the chief the, the chief issue. I mean, I remember discussions going back quite some time now around open cast mining mm-hmm. um, and uh, coal extraction, and um, being in a, a public meeting. Um, uh, Near where Tower Colliery um, is up at the top of um, Hirwine. and you know half of the people in the room were the miners who wanted the further development to go ahead, and the other half were people in the village who didn't want um, any op- any more open cast mining in in the area. And I remember trying to steer the conversation in the direction of climate change and um, there were some some sort of friends of the earth people there who were concerned about some of the um, biodiversity issues but the bigger picture climate change wasn't really part of the discussion mm. at all and and it was difficult to bring it in i mean people didn't really want to i don't think it was a case of just denying it it was just a case of it was perhaps too big to think about and mm-hmm. they were these bread and butter issues you know whether or not there was going to be extra pollution in the village or whether or not people were going to be put out of work as a result of that development not going ahead and and I remember sitting there just just thinking oh this is just absolutely awful that we can't we can't really get to the the nub of of why this would be such a bad idea and mm-hmm. also you know there needed to be some sort of discussion about what kind of alternative job provision could we create jobs that were were as well paid but creating clean energy instead um but no that wasn't that wasn't something that that we could discuss and then I I remember being in other public meetings where there were um strong opposition to wind turbines and Mm. again you know that um People not wanting to have the discussion and 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 saying there was a community group wanting to build um, eight wind turbines, which the profits would have gone back into the community, would have employed people locally, and so on. And there was opposition to the point it didn't go ahead. And and you know the the group was saying if we don't put these turbines there, a private company is going to come and do it because the land is earmarked for this kind of development. And people just wouldn't engage in that kind of discussion at all. Some would, you know, small numbers, yeah. but really, as a as a public meeting, it was just very frustrating that the climate change um, aspects weren't um, weren't really on the table. And then, of course, down the line, we had that horrific flooding event in February 2020. And and even now, you know, it's quite difficult to get. The, the authorities especially to make the linkages really between climate change and um, and flooding events like that and you know we're all aware well we should all be aware by now that these events are going to be more frequent they're going to get more they're going to get worse I mean we've hmm. seen what happened in, in Belgium and Germany uh, earlier on in the summer you know this is not something that's um, just happening now on the other side of the world which you know I mean terrible though that was it was easy to turn a blind eye to that if you didn't really want to look now you can't it's there it's in your community um, and there seems to be a reluctance to face up to the fact that that wasn't a one-off event that wasn't just a terrible terrible you know one day of, of awful rainfall um, and now we fix the culvert it'll all be alright in the future you know it's mm-hmm. um, it's very frustrating to be honest with you but we I don't think we've made the shift we need to make in our thinking in in, in mm. these terms you know
0: yeah um no I think I think we are you're well I, I've been working in the environment sector for maybe 20 odd years and you always feel like you're on the tipping point of suddenly people are going to get it and things are going to change <laughs> And it's, it's always seems just sort of out of reach doesn't it for that for that's yeah. going to happen but I think the I think the physical impacts of it taking a toll on people um do i mean they must have they must have some impact on people's understanding of of the issue and and kind of starting for it to feel real but i do think that even when something happens in wales which is climate related if it hasn't happened on your doorstep and hasn't affected your life Mm. then it's, it's still it may as well be happening in another country because it still seems distant which is if it's somewhere in wales you haven't been then it can still feel distant but yeah it's frustrating but um do you think that you wrote in 2009 i read an article in the guardian that you wrote um which i guess was was around the time that you were the shadow environment minister talking about the difficulties of of making environmental policy happen um in wales i've i mean from what you've been saying it seems like things have improved a little bit but probably not as much as you'd like and i was just wondering kind of yeah what do You feel, I mean, we're 13 nearly 13 years on from then. <laughs> whether, mm. whether, you, whether you feel things have got better, and if not, what needs to happen? Or what you know, what could you know, more powers for Wales mean for, for environmental action in Wales?
1: Well, back in 2010 11, I wrote a document called A Green Print for the Valleys, and the idea behind that was to try and change the way that we organize the economy so that we can put Um, Renewable energy, food production, um, the provision of the things that people need in their local communities at the forefront of of our economic activity. Um, And that was 10 years ago that that document was written. And it's frustrating that it's still valid today. There is still, you know, okay, it's dated slightly in that we don't have the feed-in tariff uh, anymore, which um, we did have when, when it was written. But generally you know everything that's in there is still um, it's not done it's not we've not achieved those small sustainable community renewable energy cooperatives that could have made um such a huge impact had we started this 10 years ago we we don't have the skills that people need to to create renewable energy projects, um, we don't have the the sort of economic infrastructure or the financing uh, support and uh, arrangements in place to enable the creation of, of renewable energy, and and that means that you know we're still way behind many other countries. There's there's so much on this agenda that's happened elsewhere in the world and we're in such a good position because we've got we've got this wealth of natural resources we are running out of now the the skills that we used to have as part of the mining industry because that um that that group of workers is now are now coming to the end of their lives but we did have you know really good engineers um, people who could have really helped bring on apprenticeships, apprentices, um, um, young people to, to develop their engineering skills, but in a different way, creating green energy and so on. So I really feel that we've missed an opportunity. Um, and it's frustrating that we're still having to have this conversation a decade down the line when we're running out of time. We, we don't have the time to, uh, the luxury of, of, of the time to hang around on, on this. So, um, so, yes, I mean, you can probably detect some of the frustration in <laughs> in my voice that that not not a huge amount has changed. I mean, in terms of the Senate's powers, yes, there are more um, there is more ability to to create renewable energy now um but there are still restrictions. Westminster still determines. The very largest uh, um, energy infrastructure projects, and um, that means then that the Senate whichever party is is running it, is constrained in terms of of what it can do. But I think the, the, you know, the biggest constraint is is the political will really because mm-hmm. the Senate can create um, renewable energy projects up to 350 megawatts. And if you had a policy to create as many small scale projects as you could, you could do a lot with um, with that power, but it's not, it's not being used in, in the way that it could be, I think.
0: That's interesting as well, isn't it? Because that's the potential, I mean, sometimes, limitations like that can be helpful in that if we had like you say lots of smaller scale energy projects it actually Mm. builds more um sort of democracy and equality across the country as well in terms of um who has control of the energy system and therefore you can exactly prices and all that stuff but it it also means it's it's more resilient as well to to the climate emergency in that if one big power station Mm. gets knocked out by a freak weather event then we're a bit screwed whereas if we've got a more dispersed energy sector um then it could help so it's um yeah it does seem like sort of although it's a constraint that we can't build big ones it might be might be useful in some sense that to build those smaller ones so that's
1: yeah well it could be good if that political will was there to to do that but mm-hmm. um the frustrating thing is and and you, you, you know i think the green party have got a great amount to contribute to this debate. Obviously they have a wealth of knowledge and a a wealth of understanding that they can contribute. And it's been quite frustrating that they've never made it into the Senate, you know, Mm. it's, um, and, and maybe that's because other parties have taken on green issues and, 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 Got that side of things covered. Maybe that, or maybe it's that the political will isn't there among people to elect um, green politicians, as it is in in other places. Um, but but I do feel we've missed out on not having green representation in in the Senate. Um, and uh, you know, a bigger Senate with more members would perhaps enable more uh, a more diverse range of voices, um, because we we certainly do need. Um, more green voices in Wales, I would say.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm going to, because we've mentioned that. I think I'm going to skip ahead to the question I was going to ask you at the end, but um, about the the Green Party in Scotland and how mm. it's how it's now gone into coalition with with the SNP um, for various reasons, which we probably don't need to go into. Um, but yeah, what what impact do you think that could potentially have in terms of what the Scottish government could do broadly, but also what it might be able to commit to COP26 which is coming up
1: well clearly having a majority now will make a big difference to um to the Scottish government um but having the green voices in there I think can only be a, a good thing and it will strengthen um Nicola Sturgeon's hand I think in terms of um what she is able to uh, commit to uh, as part of the the COP26 process Mm -hmm. and you know it 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 gives her um it gives her political cover I suppose you know she she if she wants to now um really push the the green and environmental agenda she's got political backing Mm -hmm. to enable her to to do that and I very much hope she she takes that up and and I think she will because I think she does recognize um the precarious situation that we're in, and I think she recognizes um, the ability for Scotland to make a big impact in that. And it's interesting to note that um, in their conference, uh, online conference um, that's happened now over over the weekend, they are talking about um, creating a, a publicly owned um, renewable energy company for scotland and um that's something that that i've advocated in the green print um back 10 years ago for wales um and i think that that could be um potentially a game changer uh, in scotland on on this whole renewable energy front and she's got the political backing out of the of the greens there to to really plow ahead with that mm.
0: is she i mean you've i'm sure you've had several meetings with her over, over the years it, it, does she strike you as an environmentalist in a and on this agenda?
1: Well, I wouldn't say she's somebody who you're going to find on the front line of an Extinction Rebellion um, protest, but I think she gets it. I mm-hmm. think she understands the, the issues and the political imperative to do something about them as well. And I think she also understands, because she goes out and speaks to people, notwithstanding COVID, but she understands the fear coming from that younger generation that I referred to earlier on, because she will be engaging with with those people and so she yeah she will definitely um get it no no doubt about that
0: yeah yeah and it's a it's a definite point of i mean it must be very strange for her to be having the cop 26 happening in in glasgow but it's kind of so dominated by the uk government and it'd be really interesting to see what statements are made and what how whether the scottish government tries to differentiate itself from the uk government in terms of commitments it'll be really interesting to see well, we've seen um,
1: the Prime Minister's already said, doesn't he, that he doesn't want the Scottish government to be part of um, <laughs> COP twenty-six, that he doesn't want Scottish flags flying and and all the rest of it. So um yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what happens there. But it would be foolish to exclude um any sort of government from from a, an event like this. I mean, we all need to pull together, we all need to work together, we all need to put whatever resources we have um, collectively to overcome some of these challenges or otherwise it's just not going to happen.
0: Yeah it's true. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the impacts climate change is going to have um, in Wales and and the kind of the adaptation requirements and the kind of how we're going to be able to manage the risk and build resilience within Wales to, to the impacts of climate change and sort of have better sort of emergency sort of procedures when we we know for example there's potential for a flood to come are we kind of you know how are we putting in the warning systems that people mm. need and supporting them um so yeah the you talked a little bit already about what the, the flood event that happened in the ronda and you've called for a public inquiry on that but i'd like to hear a bit more about um yeah what happened first of all in the ronda because lots of people probably missed it um <laughs> during mm. what was going on at that time um mm. and yeah and why you why you want to see a public inquiry and the sorts of questions that need to be explored as part of that.
1: OK, well, mid-February uh, 2020, there was um, a, a huge amount of huge deluge of water hit the there, And <clears throat> in one village, Pentre, um, the water had come down from the mountain. That had just had all the trees um, cut down um, as part of the the, um, disease prevention, tree disease prevention program. Um, and many of the people living in Pentra um, had all of this um, wood debris washed into their streets and under their cars. Um, and it was it was pretty horrific because it was just mud and twigs and boulders just filled these, these streets that had been flooded. Um, and they were impacts further down the river as well. So um, the, the, the river had, dove, had breached in a number of different places and there were many communities um, that had people who had water in their homes. Um, <clears throat> people had to be evacuated. They were out of their homes for, for months and months and months. This was, of course, just before COVID had hit. So mm. it was a really difficult time um, for all that to, to happen um, as well. I woke up early that morning for some reason, earlier than usual, and picked up that somebody um, was was saying that their house was being flooded. They'd had to be um, move everything upstairs. And then it quickly became apparent that this was something that was quite widespread um, in a number of different uh, communities and and villages. And so um, I then tried to find out what needed to happen in terms of council officials. could pe- people have access to sandbags? And it was just a day of um, confusion for many people. Um, there were uh, different um, members of workforces from different organisations on site, but people didn't really know what they were doing or mm. what whether there was any kind of coordination. The information available online was, was limited. And so... Um, There was definitely an inappropriate, um, insufficient uh, public um, authority response to what was happening on the ground on that day. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not satisfied that that wouldn't happen again. Um, And that's why I've been called for an inquiry, because we really need to understand what failed in the planning systems in order to make sure that... When Mrs. Jones gets water coming into her house, she knows which number to phone. She knows, you know, who she needs to, to get in contact with, where she can get more information, whether that's online or, you know, bearing in mind in some communities in the Ronda, very few. You know, we have lots of older people who don't have Internet access, who are not yeah. on Facebook. So, you know, there needs to be other ways of, of getting information uh, out to people uh, as well. So, that's why we've been calling for a, an inquiry, really, mainly so that we can fully understand exactly what happened, but also so that measures can be put in place so that when this happens again, because it is a case of when, I think, not if, mm-hmm. um, that, that people are much clearer about what they need to do, who they need to contact, where they can get support from. It was largely down to the community in the first few days to distribute cleaning products to people, food, they were mm-hmm. cut off from their electricity supplies, you know, and, and people sprung into action and, and uh, through Facebook mainly, lots of community action was organised to support those people. That should have been an automatic public authority response, really. And mm-hmm. it, it happened by the community because it didn't happen by the public authorities. And um, that shouldn't be allowed to happen again.
0: Do you think, no, I agree with you, definitely, and it shouldn't be allowed to happen Either in the Rhondda or anywhere else, which is, anywhere, which is vulnerable. Nor- and I think a public inquiry like this, um, obviously, it has local importance, but it has national importance as well. In that you can the questions you'll be asking there about flood preparedness, and then what happens when the emergency happens. But also, yeah, the questions around the trees there were felled for a reason for the disease prevention program. But the in other parts of the country, they're just being felled for for other reasons, and that we don't have the kind of. Um, systems in the in the in the uplands to help prevent the a fast flow of water down in, into the valleys which is why flash flooding happens and so there's there's so many questions yeah. aren't there and for us to be better adapted to to freak weather in these deluges and be able to have the infrastructure to cope with it better and that's kind of some of that's man-made human-made um infrastructure but some of it is you know we need to work with nature as well to sort of help it's probably better and normally cheaper and better for biodiversity and everything else to work to work with nature on it so
1: um Definitely. Yeah,
0: lots lots to be done there. I thought that was interesting what you said about the community response and the public authority response in that the community kind of came in in a kind of mutual aid type way to actually Mm. um, organise themselves. Do you think that um, there's a possibility that what might emerge or what might be a sensible way to to go ahead is to have a combination of that kind of community instinct to help each other working with the local authority, or do you think that it should be the local authorities should sort of swoop in and take over and, and sort of manage it in a kind of army logistics type way? Or do, you, or do you think there is a there is a space for there to be that balance between sort of um, working with the community's natural desire to help each other um, and not to kind of shut that down?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the community is best placed to know exactly where the problems are and who is most vulnerable and what um, specific support is needed in specific situations, Mm -hmm. the public authority support should be promoting and supporting that um, Mm -hmm. and providing resources to back that up when it's needed. Um, And much more coordination then between the two. the community's response was fantastic in the Rhomba, mm. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that anything should be different from that. It was just the inability to just get those basic things like sandbags to people. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it was that level of 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 um, organisation that was required. Really, you ca- We had people actually making sandbags in the end. People were donating wow. pairs of jeans and filling the legs up with sand, which was donated by the local builder supply company. A ton of sand was dumped in a, in a location at one point, And all these people turned up with these, with these homemade um, sacks to, to fill the sand, sandbags up with. Yeah. You know, that was great. And when I saw it happening and when that um, builder supply company dumped the sand off in the street, I I, I was in tears. I thought it was mm. brilliant. But at the same time, I was angry because they shouldn't have had to have been doing that those, that that should have been you know a basic thing that was supplied to people and it just wasn't there
0: yeah because the, all, all that energy that people spent on on kind of making sandbags could be much better deployed elsewhere couldn't it yeah
1: exactly exactly things.
0: yeah that's very interesting yeah that's um i think it's it'll be it's interesting to see how that's evolving isn't it with the kind of general pattern over the last 30 years of kind of the state being more and more and more removed and more and more shrunk and and that and sort of communities coming in and we saw it with a lot with covid obviously with all the Mm. mutual aid which happened there as well and um it's a bit of a mindset shift isn't it to sort of there's definitely mindsets still evolve like um exists where people are sort of (coughs) Will refuse to engage in something like a, that sort of mutual aid process, because they think it should be the government that does it, and they think that if they do, if they do, if they do kind of get involved in it, then it will give it will let the government off the hook and they won't do it the next time. But at the same time, we know how effective it can be when when communities work together like that so it's. A,
1: I didn't detect any resistance from anyone, no. um, either with the floods or with the 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 COVID that came straight after you know um, there were community volunteers being set up everywhere and no one was saying oh the government should be doing this mm. I, I didn't hear that from anyone at all it was all roll my sleeves up what can I do to help and I think um, some communities are going to be more inclined to do that than others so yeah. in a in a community like here in Ronda, where there's been great adversity where people needed to work together Dude, in the miners' strike, for example, which is not that long ago. I mean, OK, it's four decades ago, but in the, it's in people's memories still. Um, then I think it's easier to find those resources and pull them together than, than maybe in some of those communities where people don't see each other and speak to each other day to day, where they're not gathering in community spaces where there hasn't been a history of adversity where people have had to pull Mm -hmm. together to get through. Um, And so those communities might need additional government support, you know, in order for them to to knit together. But um, certainly in a place like uh, a working class community like the Ronda, it happens quite naturally. And that's an incredible strength, really. And and in terms of you know all the, the the dark fears that we have about climate change, you know there are these little glimmers of hope because people will come together and 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 do what they need to do when when the time is required, you know. And I think that's that's something to be hopeful for.
0: Yeah, definitely. And hopefully that will translate into doing the things that need to be done before the emergency arrives and <laughs> to help prevent it as well, definitely sort of tying those um yeah joining up the dots a little bit on that and i think um i think it's great that yeah the way that you're speaking around you know not it's not a matter when of if another event like this will happen it's a matter of when and i think mm. and i think the more that we see the tragedies and and catastrophes that are happening um in the uk and and in europe and the closer to home it feels and the more that it, <laughs> I think the more people will become um, open to to the sorts of policies that we're talking about to try and mitigate the crisis as well as be better adapted to it. So, yeah, hopefully some good will come of it. Um, I'm going to ask you just one more sort of question, which is which is a bit of a broader one um, about um, how climate change is kind of often sort of siloed off as an issue. Um, But we know that kind of a lot of the root causes of it are similar to the root causes of other other things which, we, which we're having to cope with around um, inequality and poverty and all these all these things as well. So um, do you think um, that a conversation about root causes might come to the surface? So I'm talking here about things like consumerism, the kind of obsession with GDP, GDP growth, patriarchy, neocolonialism and so on. Do you think there's a way in which those sorts of conversations can come to the surface a bit more in the in the political sphere and that we we will start to question the kind of unquestioned thing of GDP growth being a good thing or consumerism-based economies being a good thing. And do you think we're getting to a point where we might be able to have these conversations because climate change is just one symptom of of these deeper root causes. In my view, that might not be your view, but it's- <laughs> No, um, I it's, say your view. I, I agree I with you. So yeah, <laughs> do, do you feel it's possible to get those kind of, those root causes questions and to start, you know, <clears throat> questioning sacred cows like like economic growth
1: um i think some of those conversations are happening aren't they amongst certain small groups of people and i think you know i referenced um extinction rebellion earlier on they're doing good work in terms of ensuring that people got access to information and um are then hopefully able to make those um those links but i i just sense that The desire to link up our economic thinking with our climate change thinking is 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 wanting we need to do that unless we're prepared to look at climate change as an economic question, then I don't think we're going to make the progress that we we really need to make and that's the bit that's the bit that. um, that that even within green groups, um, often a link is made between poverty and inequality and racism and um, colonialism and the need for feminism. There's there is a disconnect between what's happening over here and um, and then what's happening in the lives of the poorest people. And unless we we link those two things, I mean, climate change is being caused by the wealthiest people on the planet. Um, and I think that there's a um, there's a reluctance to accept that point because we all need to look at ourselves then, don't we, in the West? Um, and we need to consider the privilege that we have and the impact that our actions and behaviours are having on people in a different part of the world. And I think, you know, just looking at the way that the debate around um, air travel goes you know the expansion of heathrow airport the subsidizing of of airline firms during the covid crisis um, the encouragement of people to take um airline holidays when Mm. the covid crisis goes down a little bit and it's just you know that is not the conversation that we should be having It, it should be about how can we contract the amount of uh, air travel that we do as a globe. Um, And, you know, where are all these flights going from and going to? They're not going to the poorest areas. Those flights are not being taken by the the poorest people. So, you know, attacks on air travel, a big tax on air travel, really walloping the people who do the most of it, you know, a sliding scale. So the more you do, the more you're taxed. That would be one great way of 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 really linking the economics and the travel questions to um, climate change. But I don't see the political appetite for something like that yet. So Mm -hmm. we need to keep we need to keep pushing, I think, Um, talking, debating and educating trying to get people to see these links and yeah. hopefully over time there will be a realization that is our economic activity that's that's having the biggest impact on on all of this and it's that that we need to start contracting now not keep growing growing
0: yeah it's encouraging to hear you speaking those terms i don't think there's enough politicians who are recognizing that and then and the need that yeah we do is we do need to sort of degrow some parts of our economy and there's 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 no kind of way in which we can square the circle otherwise i mean we could there's there's all the talk of net zero by 2050 which is reliant on all of these technologies that are going to magically suck carbon out of the out of the atmosphere and at some future date and i think that's being quite strongly critiqued now which is good to see i don't think it's probably mm. as highly as it should be and more i mean even within the environmental movement i think people have kind of seen net zero by 2050 as a, as a good thing and haven't critiqued it but i think in the last few months they're starting to see that there are big big problems with it or big sort of assumptions about what will happen with technology in the future and um yeah to me to me i don't i can't see how a kind of continual economic growth based on consumerism is in any way compatible with a stable climate it just seems sort of a pipe dream to think that's possible and that that does mean like you say having to search for different ways in which we can find happiness and well-being and not just through shopping and mm. flying and sort of frequent frequent flying like you say there's um there's other ways to find enjoyment in life and i think we don't oh, necessarily have to the same material footprint which is um which is where the opportunity lies i think the sort of well-being economics kind of co- question conversation which is starting to starting to come up i think all dovetails with that and I think there's a mm. good chance that um, if we start to think about well-being economics then it does sort of make you know questions about we can be a bit more agnostic about whether the, the economy grows or not it's just maybe it will maybe it won't but actually if, if we're putting well-being in the environment at the forefront then
1: I think Doesn't now's the time much. as well, as we come out of COVID, you know, more people are thinking about how they can be well and how they mm. can be mentally well, but also thinking about, do I really need all that stuff that I was buying <laughs> before? And now that I haven't been buying and I've saved money on. And and so hopefully, you know, out of a, out of a terrible disaster and crisis that covid has been and not i'm talking about it in the past sense more out of hope than anything really but mm-hmm. you know there's the it could be that mindset shift in mm-hmm. in people to realize i don't need all this this stuff um you know i don't need to be buying things for for happiness i can get up the mountain i can get in the sea i can enjoy myself in in other ways that that don't cost money and don't cost um carbon footprint either so Fingers crossed that there will be a silver lining to all of this at some point.
0: Yeah, let's hope so. Well, thanks so much, Leanne, for your time. I don't want to keep you any longer. Until you're, you're busy. Um, what's what's next for you? In uh, do you think in the next in
1: the coming years? Well, I'm actually looking at podcasting. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So i um, I'm I'm in the process of trying to see if I can put something together that people will subscribe to yeah um and then um so i'm i've just made a pilot podcast and i've started working on audacity yeah the um editing uh, and that's why i've got this this big big microphone here (laughs) (laughs) as well um so yeah i'm I'm sort of learning learning a new skill but i think i've been trying to think of ways in how i can continue making a useful political contribution really and i think there's such a dire need for um Politics to be presented in a non-confrontational way, mm-hmm. um, but also in a way that gives voice to those who we don't hear from in the conventional media, you know. So looking at thinking about more diverse um, people from diverse backgrounds, more women, um, more people of colour, I'm keen to cover Trans rights um, mm-hmm. issues and obviously um, green climate stuff as well. So, yeah, maybe I'll come back to you at some point and um, ask you to do an interview with me if that's okay.
0: Oh, I'd love that. That'd be great. And um, yeah, that sounds really good. And it's great that there's yeah the, all these things are so in- interconnected, aren't they? And there's we do a lot of work um, at, the, at another charity I work for, Global Action Plan, around um, around values and, and the kind of the, the values basis of of kind of decisions and how we. Um, as a society, most people hold compassionate values quite strongly, so care and kindness and humility and creativity and critical thinking and and those sorts of things are the things which drive most people, sort of 75% of the population. And then there's, there's kind of 25% of the population who are kind of more, um, who are sort of genuinely driven by power and wealth and status and image and all those sorts of things and tradition and try to prevent change from happening because they're quite happy with how it is. But there's a, there's a weird perception in society that most people are kind of in that kind of self-centered mm. sort of camp. But actually all the research shows that most people actually are really quite compassionate and selfless and, and actually want to do things for society. And that's, that's where the hope lies for me, is that there's if we can kind of shift that perception a little bit around sort of the values people hold, then people will start to see that they're not alone in caring and yeah. actually they do want the same things and if you give them a chance to actually see that others are doing it then they kind of come out of their shell and start to take action instead of just sort of going oh everybody's selfish and what's the point but I don't don't think it's true and I think there's that's 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 what really excites me about seeing you know sort of mutual aid things popping up and Mm. helping each other because it really shows people that, look your neighbors are really cool and friendly and nice and well will help right. you and you know, yeah and you're right and half the time they've never this might be the first time they've met some of their neighbors to exactly to, to do some of those things and they kind of wow, what else could we achieve together as a community? That but I think sh- it's the, in are, the
1: interests once. of the powers that be to give the impression that everyone's selfish and just out mm. for themselves, isn't it? And all about making money and driving the fastest car, because that's what keeps driving the, you know, the economy, the things that people want to spend more money on. And so it's in their interests to to make adverts and television programs that, you know, show people in, in that light, but My experience, like, well, I mean, I didn't know there was research to back this up, but Mm. my experience of talking to people is definitely that there are more caring people and more people out there who are selfless um, than the other way around. And I say that as a former probation officer as well. My Mm. clients in probation were the same, you know, they they might have done some really dodgy things in some cases, but generally, you know, most of them had a kind heart and wanted to do good for people. And that's what gave me the optimism in humanity really, was seeing people in that situation and kind-hearted so you know even 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 probationers and prisoners <laughs> can be nice and kind and compassionate so that's good to know definitely yeah makes me think of
0: the Shawshank Redemption
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh I that's haven't it. seen that right okay oh, that's well. one on my list <laughs> there you
0: go. I'll um and I'll, yeah I'll send you a link to that research it's really it's really interesting actually it's based it's by the Common Cause Foundation they're based in McUnfeth so, oh um, right okay um, I know I'll um I'll send you um that link because it's yeah Definitely, it really thank you really gives me hope and um, yeah Rutger Bragman has written a brilliant book um, called Humankind which really explores that kind of myth around what human nature is actually like and shows loads of examples of yeah you know why the powers that be kind of want to give us keep us divided and competitive because it's good for the economy but it's just not a true reflection of what people are actually like so yeah there's hope there for sure well anyway i have i've already gone five minutes over so i'll um i'll I'll let you go leon and yeah look forward to your podcast when it comes out and i'll I'll keep an eye on your social medias to to see that okay
1: thanks very much lovely to meet you take care bye-bye bye-bye
0: So that was Leanne Wood. I've followed her career relatively closely over the last 10 years and I have to say I was I was surprised by her depth of knowledge um, on climate change and, and other environmental issues and her perspectives on the solutions were also a lot more radical than I was expecting. Her recognition of the need to tackle some of the deeper root causes, consumerism, economic growth obsession and so on, was re- was really refreshing. But I guess I shouldn't be surprised that I've not heard this from her because she's like many mainstream political figures. They're, they're rarely asked these sorts of questions or given the opportunity to really um, scratch below the surface of, of an issue like climate change. And it's just left me pondering whether more politicians are thinking this way. The other thing which um, got me thinking was when Leanne was talking about her summer immersing herself in environmental issues, having been appointed the Shadow Minister for Environment, um, I was resisting the temptation to fly off on a tangent there about the logic of giving people ministerial roles on areas they are in no way specialist about. And the logic too of then reflu- reshuffling them to another role after two or three years when they might have actually just started to get a firm grip on the issues. It seems to happen all the time in politics. And I'd love to ask Leanne about that because she would have appointed um, ministers when she was, when um, shadow ministers when she was um, leader applied. I guess there's reasons for it, but I'm not alone in thinking um, that this kind of toing and fro and putting people into, into positions where they don't have um, great depth of knowledge is you know, at least to policy decisions that they appear to be common sense on the surface, but actually um, when you scratch below it are sometimes counterproductive and certainly often ineffective. It was fascinating to hear Leanne describe the way the local government was missing in action when the floods hit the Rhonda and how the community there sprung into action to help each other. The need for a blend of mutual aid and government preparedness, both in dealing with disaster, but in also preventing and mitigating them is so obvious. It was It was there in the in the Rhonda, but it was lacking. There was just wasn't enough of it. And it really needs to be put in place. And locations like those valleys, where social capital is really strong, um, will do better. They'll have stronger um, forms of mutual aid and will organise better, um, both to prepare and respond to climate change events, but, but other events as well. And we've seen it with the COVID pandemic, the, the mutual aid groups springing up where social capital is really strong. So it's, it's, it's something which um, is a hint I think to policymakers and to governments to to invest as best they can in nurturing social capital and getting those stronger local networks together so that people can can you know work together to help to solve problems but also work with the government rather than looking for the government to do everything i think that decentralization eco decentralization is sometimes called is is um is maybe we 're on the cusp of it. Um, Leanne has got her podcast off the ground now. Um, the episodes are really punchy. They're less than 20 minutes and they've so far covered trans rights, refugee rights, housing, Tony Blair and the most recent one was on how to build progressive movements. It's um, it's a really great listen. Um, I've put a link to it in the podcast description. Um, you can also follow Leanne on Twitter. She's on um, at Leanne Wood. The next episode of this podcast um, will be a recording of the speech that I gave at Waterstones in Bristol when we did the official launch of the Great Adaptations book, um, which was actually a twin launch with another book that I've been involved with called Climate Adaptation, which are both um, published by Arcbound. And that episode will be followed by episode four, which is an interview with adaptation specialist um, Dr Lisa Shipper from Oxford University. Finally, then, thank yous. Thank you to Leanne um, for your time and your insights. It was great to talk to you. Thank you to the volunteers, the trustees and the partners of the Glacier Trust for your support with this project, but also in helping to enable climate change adaptation in Nepal. Thank you to Arkbound and to Ellie Donovan for everything you've done to get the Great Adaptations book published and promoted. Thank you to everyone who supported the crowdfunder. Thank you to Amity for the music that goes with this podcast and thank you to Hannah Ahmed and Susie Harrison for the artwork that goes with The Great Adaptations Project. Thank you to Wiper and True for collaborating on the wonderful Coffee and Cardamom Stout. More information on that and how to order it via our website, theglaciotrust.org forward slash beer. And finally, thank you to you for listening, for downloading, for rating and reviewing. Um, this is The Great Adaptations Podcast. See you next time.